Just about everybody has heard the term sea level rise, especially over the past decade. But only a very few understand how the ocean, with strong hydrodynamic forces, interacts with the structures and materials which support our coastal buildings and infrastructure. In this episode of Climate Monitor, we speak with South Florida's Ricardo Alvarez, an internationally acclaimed expert and consultant who focuses on the performance of the built environment in the context of vulnerability to natural hazards, such as hurricanes and adaptation to climate change. Mr. Alvarez explains how engineers, architects, city planners, and legislators can plan for a stronger future as oceans swell, powerful hurricanes strike our coasts, and extreme weather events affect the buildings in which we live and work. Understanding his work is especially important for condominium board members in all coastal regions, in Florida and beyond. The lessons he has learned and the solutions arising from Mr. Alvarez's studies are especially relevant in the aftermath of Hurricanes Ian and Nicole in 2022, as buildings and residential properties on Florida's Gulf and East Coasts have been destroyed, weakened, and evacuated. Mr. Alvarez, who conducted extensive research in post-hurricane and earthquake damage to buildings, explains what happens when storm surge occurs, what is really meant by wave energy impacts and hydrodynamic pressures. He also informs as to how building codes need to take into account a changing climate to meet the pressures of the coming decades, and if such a proactive approach is actually being done. The interview took place on Saturday, November 13th, 2022. All right, so Ricardo, tell me a little bit about what my biggest concern is these days, and that is, let's suppose I live in a condominium along a coastal area, let's say in Miami or Broward County or West Palm Beach, and I'm right on the ocean, right on the beach. There's A1A. There's all these buildings around me. I'm worried about what climate change means in relation to those buildings. And specifically, I'm worried about sea level rise and the forces that are exerted on these buildings. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about today. Um, can you give me some idea about, first of all, what is the built environment? The built environment is the aggregation, the collection of buildings and houses that shelter human activity. So it can be everything, everything from like a condominium to an office building or even a fire station, anything Hospital, like that? University. So all of those buildings and houses. So where you live and where you work, even where you play, this, this is the built environment. But it also includes beyond the buildings and the houses, it includes the infrastructure that supports uh, those activities. So by infrastructure, you're referring to what? Streets, utilities. So how does energy get to your building? Uh, waste management, how waste gets out of your building. 
how do you how do you drive to your building? Where do you park? So all of those other peripheral uh, pieces of uh, structures, construction, uh, support the uh, the buildings and the houses. So that combination of infrastructure, buildings, and houses is what we call the built environment. So you got involved in sea level rise back in 1996, about 26 years ago. That's quite a long time to be working on this topic when most people at that time never even had it enter their, their thought process. What got you interested in it with relation to the built environment? Well, after Hurricane Andrew, I, I got involved in doing damage assessment for, the, uh, for FEMA. And by damage assessment, I mean inspecting a lot of the damage that took place uh, in Miami-Dade County because of Hurricane Andrew and trying to establish two things. One, what was the amount of damage? How did that damage uh, take place? But most importantly, how to mitigate future damage, to reduce potential damage in the future from other hurricanes. So it was a combination of, okay, what happened? What can we do? What do we need to do differently? So that in the future, uh, it won't happen again. So the, the whole idea is do not just rebuild as it was, but make changes, make it stronger, understand why they didn't happen and uh, provide uh, mitigation solutions so that it won't happen again. So let's take that hypothetical building I was talking about at the beginning. Uh, let's call it a 20-story condominium complex in, let's just say, Sunny Isles uh, in North Dade County. And the building, let's say, hypothetically, was built in 1977. So here we are in 2022, almost 23. And so I would assume that it was built to the building codes that were established at that time. Is that a fair assumption? That is a fair assumption, yes. But were those building codes uh, prospective or looking forward to what happens in the decade of 2020 to 2030? No, no. The, the, the building codes then, in those years, 19, the 1970s, and even now, do not generally look forward. They are based on historical data and an estimation of how past impacts might be exceeded. exceeded. Uh, but, but they are really based on historical data. So we've had sea level rise, of course, uh, since the 70s up until now. Um, people hear about it increasing by small amounts on an average uh, year, but we've had demonstrable or measurable sea level rise since the 70s in Southeast Florida, correct? That is correct. I, I, I like to go back to 
your question about how did I get involved in this. Sure. Uh, in, in 1996, uh, I was called by a major hospital uh, in, in Miami Beach. And the reason for the call was that the county, after having gone through uh, Hurricane Andrew, was reviewing uh, emergency plans, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and in regards to the hospital, it was telling them that they needed to evacuate the hospital in case of a hurricane warning. And of course, evacuating a hospital is no easy task for many reasons. And, and um, the, the, the hospital did not really want to evacuate. And they asked the county, what do we need to do to stay in place? What if we can protect in place? So they needed a consultant that, that knew about these things that so they called me in. And in the process of evaluating how vulnerable the hospital was because of the location. What could happen during a hurricane? Um, I discovered the issue of surge, storm surge, and coastal flooding. And in evaluating potential damage, we knew what had happened during uh, Andrew with flooding in the hospital. So that, that gave us uh, an idea of what could happen. But uh, I also discovered that the data that the hospital had regarding ground elevation, how, how high the ground was above sea level, mean sea level. And mean sea level is the, 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 the half point between high tide and low tide. Uh, I discovered that since the hospital uh, had been built, you know, the older building, the data about how high they were above mean sea level had changed because of sea level rise. That's where sea level rise came into being. And I understood that, uh, well, first of all, we need to correct the, the surveys for the hospital. So where it shows that the ground floor of this building is, to give you an example, uh, 10 feet above mean sea level. Now we need to say uh, it's only nine feet and uh, three inches, something like that, because it had changed. Sea level had risen. So now the ground floor of that building was closer to being flooded. I search. And of course, uh, that really pointed to, to the fact that if sea level continued to rise, that situation would get worse looking forward. Well, as it, as it rises, there's a lot going on beneath the surface, though. It's not just what's visible in terms of the rising water line. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, uh, sea level rise has two components. The rise, which is uh, how high, how 
much deeper the water is getting as uh, global warming melts the glaciers and all of those things happening. But it also has a horizontal component. Just like a staircase. Uh, staircase doesn't go vertically up from ground, you know, first floor to second floor. It goes at, a, at an angle. So the horizontal travel of that staircase is what we call the run. So we have a, a sea level run as well. And that horizontal component is a function of the slope of the beach, the slope of the continental shelf in, in one location. So here in Florida, uh, of course, the, the, the East Coast is different than the West Coast because the slope is rather different. But in any case, uh, here in Southeast Florida, in our area, the horizontal component of sea level rise uh, is approximately 150 to 200 times the vertical component. So what, what does that mean in, in, in layman's terms? In layman's term, it means that when, when you see a projection, somebody saying, oh, we may get uh, one foot of sea level rise by 2050. Okay, that one foot of sea level rise, multiply that times 150 or 200. So let's say 200. So the sea goes up one foot, but horizontally it moves inland 200 feet. It's a big difference. So a building that might not have been subject to coastal flooding when it was built, you know, a few years back, by 2050, it could be exposed to coastal flooding and surge because of that horizontal component. And you already mentioned there are things going on underground, unseen. Yeah, let's talk about that because that's the, the fascinating part about this to me is something called hydrodynamic pressure. And I'd like to understand better what that means in the context of sea level rise. Well, sea level rise, the water, as it interacts with the built environment, with the beach, is creating pressure, is pushing uh, on the beach or on the building. And when it's just pushing, we call that uh, hydrostatic pressure. So water at rest, you get, you get uh, high tide and the water comes in contact with your building, you know, for a few hours, couple of hours or whatever. That water, which is not moving much, is exerting some pressure. Water actually is, and I'm going to use a technical term here, but I, I will define it. Water is what we call an isotropic fluid. Fluid, well, is the water, a liquid. An isotropic means that it pushes <clears throat> in all directions with equal force. So it's not just uh, pushing, uh, let's say, <laughs> from, uh, from the ocean inland, but it's pushing up, it's pushing down, it's pushing to the sides. So it pushes all around. 
And when that, that water is against your building, it's pushing. Now, when the water is moving, rushing, being pushed by the wind and by a hurricane, creating surge. So that rushing water is still creating pressure, but now it's moving. That's what we call hydrodynamic pressure. Dynamic from the sense that it is in motion, it's moving. And <clears throat> the impact of that water in motion, that surge, is much higher than water at rest. So simple flooding, yes, it's, it's, it's pushing against your building, it's creating pressure, but uh, not enough to create structural damage, to demolish your building, like we recently saw with the Hurricane Ian and now with Hurricane Nicole, how some buildings were really damaged because of well, well, let me ask you something, because the, the storms that we've had in 2022, uh, Ian and, and the most recent storm that hit near Vero Beach, um, they were, I guess you would call them direct impact storms. But can you have a storm surge and hydrodynamic pressure from uh, hurricanes that are passing along the coast but not impacting the coast? You can certainly have a surge and hydrodynamic pressure impacting your buildings, even though you don't have a direct hit. It all it has to do with your location and the fact that the hurricane is rotating. So a hurricane could be moving along the coastline here in South Florida, going north without making landfall. But if you picture this in your mind, that, that hurricane is a big system, is rotating uh, counterclockwise. So if the fact that the hurricane is moving north doesn't mean that uh, there is no wind coming our way. So let's get back to hydrodynamic pressure uh, and, and surge, whether it's just, well, can there be natural surge, not just storm surge? Well, whenever you have a high tide, you, 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 have, a, you have hydrodynamic pressure. So when we, when we hear about king tides in October of every year, or high tides throughout the year, there's still forces that the, the water environment is exerting on the built environment. Is that a fair way to say it? Yes, as long as the water is moving and, and hitting the, your building or even the street, the sidewalk is exerting pressure. So regular waves, regular waves that, that are coming on shore and then receding and the water goes back in the ocean and then the next wave comes along. Is that part of the hydrodynamic pressure that we've been talking about? Yes. And, and I'm glad you mentioned waves because waves are an added component 
So search is just the Russian water. On top of that Russian water, the wind is creating waves. The energy of the wind is transferred to the water and it creates waves on top of surge. So you have the hydrodynamic pressure of surge hitting, hitting the building. And then you have these rolling waves coming and as they break against your building above the surge, you have an extra amount of hydrodynamic pressure, an impact load, an impact force hitting your building. So and if you have, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say on the topic of hurricanes, it is really very simple. Hurricanes create damage by using water and air. It's that simple. And it is, it is really a paradox because water and air are two essential elements that we all need to live. I mean, we cannot, uh, you know, <laughs> go on without having water or without breathing air. But air in motion is wind and a very strong, strong wind is a hurricane and water. Uh, in motion is storm surge and it's very strong. Now, water at sea level is roughly 800 times denser than air. So if you take a cubic foot of air hitting you, you probably won't even feel it. You, you feel a little bit, but not much. But if, if you take a cubic foot of water and that cubic foot hits you, you're gonna feel a big, big impact. That's why surge is so damaging. And it's getting worse because of sea level rise generated by climate change. So what is the role of chloride? Chloride is is an element. Am I correct in that? Yes, uh, the, the the chlorine in the water is seawater uh, because of the salt uh, component of that water. It's one of the elements in in, in, in seawater. But what is really interesting about it is that it's highly corrosive. So. This, uh, this water, as it hits you, it, it doesn't in only uh, apply a hydrodynamic pressure that may damage the building, but that water itself is corrosive. So any, any material in your building that can be corroded is being corroded. Well, in your book, in your book that uh, I find really fascinating, have ever since I first read it, Hurricane Mitigation for the Built Environment, you say on page 214, quote, perhaps the most crucial or critical topic regarding the foundation of buildings located in the coastal region of hurricane vulnerable areas is the corrosion of reinforcement in concrete that can lead to structural failure. You also say this problem will become worse 
with time as sea level rise will continue to increase the exposure of reinforced concrete structures to salt water. So just as a layperson who's listening to all these reports about storm surge and the sea level rise, and now we understand about you know, wave action and high high, hydrodynamic pressure, we're also dealing with the components of the seawaters itself as part of a, a process that's affecting the building environment, right? Yes. So let's talk about that corrosive effect. Uh, I, you know, when you touch concrete, it seems pretty solid to me. Um, wouldn't want to get hit by it. But um, what, yeah, what's, what's wrong with concrete? Concrete is solid, but it's also porous. If you look at it uh, with a magnifying glass or under a micro microscope, you're going to see that it has very small holes that go go into the concrete. So when when water uh, when sea water is in contact with concrete, is very gradually penetrating. I mean, not not that it will go from let's say one side of a, of a concrete wall to the other, but it nevertheless is getting in, into the uh, into the concrete and underground through the sand below water that salt water is also penetrating the sand and it can get if you if your building is close to the beach that salt water will get to the foundations of your building and the foundations are usually reinforced concrete meaning it's, it's concrete reinforced with uh, usually steel, what we call rebar, and steel is corrosive. It's, cor <laughs> it's uh, easily corroded. Is, is that what we call spalling? No, no. The, the, when steel corrodes because of contact with seawater, uh, it, 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 it creates a, a coating a brown coating that's uh you you've seen you've seen uh, corroded uh, metals and, and steel and, and it, it gets brown so it, it it begins to increase in size because it is when it, when it's corroding steel is actually dissolving very very slowly and these little pieces of uh, steel that that uh, are dissolving start to coat a rebar, so it grows in size. But as you imagine, if you have a foundation going into the ground, what you see on the outside of that, that column going in, into the ground is the, is the concrete itself. But inside are these rebar, these uh, reinforcing steel rebar. As they corrode and grow in size, they start pushing against the concrete from the inside out. And, and when they push, and these forces are very strong, they start to create little cracks. So here you have uh, concrete, which is porous, has these very small little holes. Now, from the inside out, small cracks start to form. So now more, more water gets in 
it's easier for the salt water to get in, which increases the corrosion, speeds it up. When that happens, the cracks become larger. So slowly the, that piece of reinforced concrete is being uh, demolished from the inside out. And eventually uh, those cracks may get to the surface and a piece of that concrete may fall. That's what we call concrete spalling. You see, you see the cracks on the concrete and little and pieces of just coming off. Chunk, so what, what I'm hearing is that you may look at your building, this hypothetical building that I've been talking about, and say, well, everything looks fine, but there's damage we see and damage we don't see if we don't have the proper building materials, the proper foundation, and if we haven't planned ahead for the forces that sea level rise and the corrosive effect of seawater and wave and tidal action, et cetera, if we don't plan for those, we're, we're not seeing everything that's going on just because it looks fine from the outside, right? That is correct. If, if you think of a building as a, as a human being, the skeleton of a human being is equivalent to the, to the structure of a building. Uh, so from the outside, you see, you see your arm and it, look, well, it looks good. <laughs> but uh, maybe there is something wrong with your bone inside and you need special equipment to see. Sort of like a degenerative disc disease or some kind of degenerative process in your spine. Uh, you, you don't always see it unless you're, you're looking for it. Yes, and, and you have to think about this. This structure, all of these reinforced concrete uh, columns and beams, or it could be steel uh, columns and beams, uh, are supporting the load of all of the materials that we use to build that building, of all of the furniture that is inside the building of all the other components, you know, equipment, air conditioning equipment, uh, plumbing pipes, uh, fixtures, lights, everything inside the building has weight. So all of that weight is actually being supported by that, by that structure. And what the structure is doing is transferring that, all of that weight into the ground, to the foundation. And that's how the building stays in place. It's anchored to the ground. And you need to go down deep to find you know, good solid ground. So when you see a high rise close to the beach, it's not anchored to the sand, but actually the foundation goes through the sand down deep until it finds solid ground. Usually there is rock somewhere below. It could be, 10 feet, it could be 50 feet. But in, in Southeast Florida and other portions of Florida, it's not just solid rock. There's also, there's also uh, porous limestone. Yes, that, that is correct. We have porous limestone in, in between, but down below the limestone, we have a harder rock. So you just, you just can't put uh, structures or reinforcements for buildings into the limestone. It's gotta go deeper than that. Is that what you're telling us? Yes. All right. So all, all these, this all raises a lot of very important questions. 
<clears throat> if you have a building, let's say that I, I said that building was built in the 70s, late 70s, and here we are today, is that building experiencing pressures and forces that are accumulating over time? Yes, as soon as the building is built, or this building uh, of your example, 1977, when that building was open and occupied, that, that from that moment on, uh, there, there was pressure on the building. <clears throat> pressure from within the building because of its weight, and then pressure from the outside, external forces, the wind pushing, so it could be, it could be, uh, you know, a very slow wind. So the push is not that much. It doesn't too much. But once in a while you have a storm. It doesn't need to be a hurricane. It could be a squall, you know, heavy rain. They start hitting the building and there, there, there are forces acting from the outside impacting your building. Aren't those forces mitigated, though, when people uh, construct seawalls? Well, those forces, uh, the winds and, and then the, the water underneath getting into your building. Uh, some people build seawalls to protect against the big impacts, you know, storm surge or waves coming in. Um, a seawall gives you some protection against the big impact, but at the same time, it really creates the conditions for even worse damage in the future. And the reason for that is that when you put a seawall along the beach, when the waves come, when surge comes, it is reflected, it rebounds against the seawall. So it doesn't get to your building, it protects the building, but as it reflects back, that energy takes the sand away. So it, it really weakens the beach. And just think for a moment, maybe you have a sand dune, and a sand dune on the beach is a good thing because it's a natural uh, element that helps protect the beach. It makes it more resistant. But if you have that energy of water bouncing against your seawall and taking that dune away, it starts to weaken the beach. So over, over time, over the years, all of that energy, bouncing against the seawall and uh, hitting your, the beach in front of your building is really weakening the beach, making it easier to erode when we have surge. So what you thought was a solution initially, which it was, over time, uh, it becomes a hazard itself. It contributes to the potential for damage. So I'm looking at a New York Times report that came out on uh, November 11 yesterday, and it talked about after Hurricane Nicole, condominium owners grapple with living beachside. And I saw some pictures on 
NBC or CNN, whatever it was, and they showed that the beach completely disappeared. And in one area, whether it was from Hurricane Ian or Hurricane Nicole, the the seawalls were gone. They were destroyed. They weren't even visible anymore. So it it can take one big event, but you're saying that over time, there could be a weakening of that seawall structure that isn't visible. Is that also, is that accurate? That is accurate. You also have to take into account that over time, as the sea level rises, water gets higher. So the impact of water on the seawall gets stronger because you have more water hitting, hitting the, the, the wall. And the pressures underneath, below ground, below the water, means that uh, that salt water is, uh, there is seepage. There is water going underneath your seawall and getting behind it. So the whole system is, is being weakened unless you have a seawall that goes down deep, uh, you know, 100 feet or something like that, which is not the case. So this, the seawall is, uh, is uh, it's a partial solution over a short amount of time, but in the longer time, the impacts of salt water, hydrodynamic pressure, waves breaking against it, seepage underneath, all of those combined uh, make the beach weaker, easier to erode, and also weaken the seawall itself. Well, are there other components like extreme heat or extreme pre precipitation that, that add to this combination or this formula that is a threat to the built environment? Yes. Uh, if, if we think about the coastal region, that we are discussing, buildings close to the beach or not, not necessarily in front of the beach. They could be inland, you know, a few blocks inland, even a couple of miles inland. That is still what we call the marine environment. The salt spray from, from, the, uh, from the seawater is carried by the air. So it's not just that building sitting in front of the beach, but you can go inland and you can still experience corrosion because of a salt spray in the air and salt water infiltration below ground. And all of these things are contributing to this uh, highly corrosive marine environment, which if you did not plan for when you build your building, you are in for surprises later on when your building starts to show signs of, uh, of damage. Not only corrosion of finishes, but maybe the unseen corrosion of, of structural elements. And we already described, you start seeing maybe stains, little brown stains on, 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 the, on the beams and the columns of your building. Uh, and or maybe you see little cracks, or maybe you see this polling that you mentioned. 
and I tell you, when, when that starts to happen, if you do an inspection of your building, you're going to most probably find other signs of damage. Like for example, uh, beams that are deflected, still being straight, you see them kind of sagging a little bit. Uh, you may see uh, slabs. Wait, wait, hold on a second. You're saying that a beam can slide? Uh, no, it can deflect. Okay. Well, there was a building recently in Miami Beach that uh, had deflection. They showed some pictures of that. So that was that movement of a steel beam? Yes. So when they start to deflect, uh, it becomes weaker. It doesn't work uh, the way it was designed. And okay, so let's go back though. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let's go back for a second. You you know you talked about uh, Hurricane Andrew. We had a building code in place at that time. Then a new building code went into effect, which was much better. Correct. Yes. But just because. When was Hurricane Andrew? It was a long time ago. 1992. Uh, okay, it seems like ages ago. 30 uh, years ago. And so that that building code, from what I'm hearing today, just trying to put all this together, that building code is not up to par with the, in, with the climatic and environmental changes that we're experiencing now and what we will experience between now and 2050. Well, the, the, the building code, we have a, a long history of building codes in Florida. Uh, if we go back to the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, throughout Florida, we had uh, maybe three or four different building codes that different counties were using. Here in South Florida, we had something called the South Florida Building Code. And that, that, that code for the first time started to take a hard look at the, uh, the wind load, meaning the forces of the wind and how they could impact your building and how to design your building to be more resistant to wind loads, what we call horizontal load. Uh, and this was something new. It was interesting, something new. Because be before, before that happened, the building codes require you to think of uh, what we call vertical loads. The weight of your building, you know, going down, being pulled by gravity, you know, towards the ground. So you, we were this, those buildings were designed for that you know, like in the 1940s, for example, that's how they were designed. Even high-rise buildings. So when the South Florida building code came into being, the wind loads, the horizontal loads were taken into account. And that as a result, we had stronger buildings. Uh, over time, a number of factors combined to weaken the code bit in the ways of uh, materials that were allowed and, and other issues. So when Andrew hit, uh, 
we were surprised by some of the damage we saw. And uh, there was a, a commission, a grand jury and a commission uh, to do a study of how the building code could be improved. And it was improved. Uh, very important changes were made. But not enough, not enough to deal with what we're talking about today. Uh, by and large, strong enough to deal with uh, some of the main issues we're facing today. But of course, the weakness remains that uh, even today's code is based on historical data. It doesn't look forward. It so tell you, if you're building today, this building, day 2022, you need to think what's going to happen in terms of a storm surge. So that's, that's one of the lessons then, right? That's, that's one of the lessons that we can learn from Andrew to now and all these other hurricanes and climate change, uh, more carbon being absorbed by the ocean, more chloride, more wave action, uh, high tides uh, and all that. Let's talk about lessons and, and solutions. Where do we go uh, beyond perhaps strengthening a building, a building code? Well, well, I think we already have a good, a good lesson with Andrew. And, and let me explain why. Uh, one of the main changes with the, with the code after Hurricane Andrew was the need to have what is called product approval. That means every material, every component that goes into a building, uh, after the changes we made in 1994, after Andrew, is required to be tested and to pass certain minimum uh, performance uh, limits in, in terms of uh, resisting the impact of flying debris, for example. So one of the issues was a broken window allows the hurricane wind to come in, to come in and really damage the interior of your house. So can we protect that window with something that won't break? Uh, either by putting shutters in front of it or by having impact resist resistant glass. Let me tell you, when we were proposing those changes, uh, the industry was in revolt. Oh, there's no way we can have uh, impact resistant glass. It'd be too expensive. Uh, even the shutters, we, we cannot make sure that resist uh, impact of you know a flying piece of wood or a flying tile. In the end, uh, the testing protocol showed that it could be done. Industry responded that we now have impact resistant windows and doors and impact resistant hurricane shutters throughout, and they are required. So the product approval process was a very good a good lesson because it, it dealt directly with the impact that we we were we saw from Andrew, the uh, the flying debris, the wind pressure, uh, and things like that. It, it really improved. 
do we need stronger building materials now? For example, do we need a new type or new generation of concrete that's got carbon in it to make it stronger? Well, I, I think we need to deal with uh, the impacts that we didn't deal before. Corrosion. We have a reinforcement for concrete that has gone from uh, regular steel to stainless steel or galvanized steel. And even now uh, we have non-corrosive reinforcement that can be used, made out of polymers and fiberglass, carbon fiber. So we, have, we, we do have the materials. What we don't have is the requirement by code that they must be used. So in, in some cases we, we've seen, and this is from many years back, uh, in, in, in road building, you know, highway building, the interstates, uh, they began using epoxy coated steel as reinforcement to reduce the potential for corrosion. And that made it stronger. Uh, the concrete itself can be changed in terms of uh, the, the aggregates that you use, the, the components that you use uh, to make it uh, more dense, stronger, less porous. You also have uh, other materials that you can use, like coatings. You can coat the outside of your structure with something that prevents water from getting in. And that increases the, not only the strength, but the, the, the life, the service life. So that's what we are looking for. We, we, we need to incorporate into the code all of the advances in uh, materials and methods of construction. But above all, we need to change the mindset from one that uh, looks back at what had happened before to one that looks forward at what can happen during the service life of a new building. So if you're, if, if you're the owner of the building, you want your building to last a hundred years. Great, okay. What, what may happen in a hundred years? In terms of uh, storm surge, wave impact, uh, salt water intrusion uh, below ground, hurricane wind, all of those issues that uh, uh, are so <laughs> so current today. What what will happen? So, if I'm a condominium board member in that building that I've been talking to you about, that hypothetical building, what can I do now as a board member with all my my fiduciary duties to? protect my association, protect everyone's investment. What can I do in relation to all the kinds of uh, physics and pressures that we've been talking about? Who do we talk to? What do we do? How do we inform ourselves? What proactive steps can we take as board members to, to get a handle around what needs to be done to modify or adapt our buildings? Well, he, here in, in, in Miami-Dade County, we have had uh, for more than 
40 years, uh, something called building recertification that requires that uh, any, any, any building that has been in service for 40 years needs to be recertified that it's still a viable structure. And that requires inspection. And the inspection is a structural inspection and also the electrical system. Sure, but climate change is getting worse. Uh, we're getting hotter and hotter temperatures. We're getting more carbon soaked into the uh, ocean, uh, more chloride, for example. We're getting uh, stronger, more intensive extreme weather and storms that last longer, that are wetter, maybe move slower, like the one over at Houston uh, uh, several years ago. So uh, that's all fine, but I mean, Board members, uh, and I used to be a president of an HOA, not a condominium, but, you know, we all think we're experts on everything. We're experts on nothing. We need to get expertise infused into our thinking about what reserves we need and, and, uh, and what planning we have to do in order to deal with the, the impacts of sea level rise, climate change, et cetera, in the future, the near term. Yes, I, I, I mentioned the, the, the building recertification process because it gives us a baseline, something that, that, that has worked to some good degree over the years. But of course, it needs improvement, it needs change, it needs to adapt itself to what we know now. And it means that that system itself needs to be enhanced, number one. N number two, we need to think, first of all, that a building by building approach uh, will not work in the long term because uh, one building may do it, the building next door may not do it, and you have a problem. So we need to think, first of all, regionally, what can we do to keep the hazard away as much as we can? We cannot stop nature. Let's be clear about that. But we can certainly reduce the impact. We can mitigate the impact. But it's beyond the role of, uh, it's not just on governments. It's not just on regional planning and so forth, isn't it also the responsibility of architects and engineers and developers to be sensitive to this topic so that buildings are built with the expectation that they will have to remain strong and resilient over the average lifetime of the planned building? Yes, I think building professionals, and by that I mean the engineers, the architects, the builders themselves need to be proactive in the sense that it is not enough to just meet the minimum requirements of the building code if we are going to reduce the potential for damage or to avoid the kinds of damage we recently have seen from uh, the hurricanes that have hit Florida on both coasts. We need we need the building professionals 
really proactively looking so, forward and, and making recommendations on how to build. The technology is there. There's new technology coming uh, online every day that, that we, we could use. And even though it may not be incorporated into a building code yet, uh, a building professional can certainly make recommendations in that regard. And, and, it, and we have some examples already where that is the case here in Miami-Dade County. We have, uh, for example, a couple of museums in Miami where the, the first floor was uh, elevated. 20 some feet above being sea level to avoid flooding and to avoid uh, surge from, from damaging. Well, you were involved in one of those projects, right? I, I, I've been involved in some of those projects. And that hospital that you mentioned in Miami Beach, uh, are they now required to evacuate in a Cat 1 hurricane? Well, that, that hospital actually was granted back in those days, I think, uh, Yes, in 1996, 1997, they were granted an exemption from evacuation. But they were granted that because they were able to show that they were reinforcing, hardening the structure of the building, uh, preventing or reducing the potential for damage from wind pressure, from flooding, they demonstrated that they could uh, remain uh, on their own in terms of a functioning, uh, having energy, water, waste management for two weeks, independent of any outside help. And only after they demonstrated all of that, they were granted by, by the county the exemption from evacuation. This is really is really a fascinating topic. The book is Hurricane Mitigation for the Built Environment by Ricardo A. Alvarez. It's published by the CRC Press. It was published way back in um, 2016, if I recall. Yeah, and, and a lot of the contents of this book are coming alive uh, ever since uh, I picked it up after the tragedy in Surfside. I see stuff in there that that's uh, quite relevant and even relevant to the hurricanes we've had in 2022. Ricardo Alvarez, thank you so much for joining us today and educating us. So let's talk about some additional solutions that you could propose. Well, I think we can learn from uh, some solutions that have been applied locally in, in small scale and apply those solutions on a larger scale. Let's, let's go back to the issue of surge and hydrodynamic pressure and wave impact, the big, the big damaging component of, of a hurricane, even without a direct impact that we already talked about. How, what can you do to soften that impact? Well, there was a project actually after Andrew. I won't specify it because uh, I don't have permission 
to disclose where it was, but actually the solution that we came up with had to do with the marina uh, in the county that have, have had a lot of damage from the search that came from Andrew, damaged boats, uh, damage to the piers. So how, how do you prevent that uh, in a place like Florida where marinas and boating are, are uh, components of uh, the big uh, tourism industry? People like to be out there in the water. So we, we came up with an idea of creating uh, like, a, like a cradle made out of concrete. And by cradle, I mean a structure consisting of beams, just like you see on a pier, where you have the, the concrete beams underneath and then you have the pier, the pier build up. Well, think of that structure supporting the pier, except that it would be underwater. And it would have like uh, at mid at mid height, it would have a place where you could place rocks. So the 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 the, the function of the rocks was to create a filter, like a filter that would let the water go through, but it would actually take much of the energy of that surge out of it. Now, the fact that it was elevated uh, was for one very good reason, to allow marine life, think of turtles, for example, which are a big, big uh, protected species here in, on, along our beaches, and seagrasses and all of that to grow unimpeded uh, underwater. It was shown, we did a model, and it was shown that that filter of rocks underwater actually reduce the energy of the surge, the energy of impact, the hydrodynamic energy pressure. It reduced it by close to 70%. So in this small project, that solution was actually built and it created a very safe marina. Well, is that the same concept as, as uh, when people are saying put wetlands in coastal areas to absorb the energy of a, of a storm surge? It's, it's similar. And, uh, and I like to uh, touch on that in just a second. But going back to this example, um, we, we could perhaps do this on a regional scale. Think of the uh, Tri-County area from uh, Palm Beach to, uh, to Miami-Dade County. If we could build something like that out there and uh, at appropriate places build uh, maybe locks to allow for commercial navigation, we could be making the search a lot less damaging than what we have seen. And at the same time, still allow for marine life, uh, for the, the transport of sand that comes from the north to replenish the beaches. We could allow for all of that to, to remain. But we, we need to think that big to really start uh, creating solutions that reduce uh, 
the potential for damage in, in real terms, not, not a building by building approach. The building by building approach, of course, uh, we need to do. If you are a condominium board or a building manager or building owner, I think it behooves you to take those measures. And, and a big problem along these lines is that we are almost fully built up. So it is easy, easier to provide solutions when you're doing a new building because you, you can incorporate the new materials, the new uh, non-corrosive reinforcement, the stronger concrete, all of those things, the elevation above, above surge and, and wave impact, you can incorporate that into the design and build it like that. But when you have a built environment like we have, I mean, you go, <laughs> you drive along the coast here and it's fully built up. So all of these buildings need to be uh, inspected, recertify. You don't need to be waiting for 40 years to do your recertification. You need to be looking for signs of what's going on with your building. And even for things that you don't see visually, there's plenty of instrumentation that you can use to see if, uh, to detect if there is corrosion ongoing already. And once you, you have more information, there are measures you can take to start uh, enhancing, strengthening even an existing building today. To diagnose, to diagnose what's happening in this, the structural part, uh, the foundational part of a building, uh, is LIDAR a tool, a diagnostic tool that can be used by engineers and and in, uh, in, their, in their inspections of these properties? No, LIDAR is not for that, uh, but you have a ground penetrating radar uh, that is uh, portable and compact enough to do that. You have uh, other sensors that you can install on, on your structure that detect uh, corrosion. So you have X-ray equipment that you can use on individual uh, concrete members to, to detect uh, damage. And once, once you have a diagnosis, then you can start applying the engineering solutions. So if I'm a board member and I want to see what the condition of my building is, I need an engineer or a structural inspection, but I can still go downstairs and take a look at at least for outward exterior signs that something's wrong. Um, I guess there's no app yet you can put on your phone to, to beep when there's a problem, but uh, I can still do that. And it's, it goes back to what the law enforcement says. You see something, you say something, right? Exactly. Yes. Uh, and, and you don't even need to hire an engineer to start doing that. It could be your own... Uh your own maintenance uh, staff, maybe maybe get somebody knowledgeable about uh, these issues to do a visual. You start with a visual inspection, you take pictures, you, you try to document periodically, take pictures today and take it uh, every month. But they have to be trained and educated about what to look for and how to document it. 
Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned this because even when we, when we discuss the recertification of buildings, uh, the, the existing requirements today, because by law you need to do it, uh, are rather weak, and that's why they need to be changed. Uh, the requirement is that you need to have a licensed architect or engineer do the inspection and make the recommendation. Uh, the fact that you are a licensed architect or engineer doesn't really equate to you having the expertise on these topics of uh, surge, hydrodynamic pressure, salt water infiltration, all of those issues, uh, hurricane mitigation, uh, to be able to make recommendations. So uh, it's, uh, it has to be a combined approach of uh, the individual level, the boards with, uh, with help from, from consultants and, and professionals start, start doing the inspections. At the regional level, the, uh, the county commissions, the city commissions, uh, the building code people getting involved in this. But at the larger level, we need to have the education sector involved, the licensing, the professional licensing sector involved, all of those working together to ensure that the professionals that we need for this effort are really informed, knowledgeable about these issues so that they can in turn uh, provide the, the best recommendations for potential solutions. If I had my way, I would require if I was the governor or I was in the state legislature, I would try to create a program that requires board members to take additional training in what you've been discussing today so they can make the most informed decisions uh, to deal with the threats that we're all facing. Um, I, I think it's key because uh, uh, board members, uh, this building have a heavy responsibility. And I think uh, recent events have actually uh, shown a bright light on some of the weaknesses of the system. So I, I think uh, they need uh, help. They need to uh, be better educated. And by being so, they, they can take more better informed uh, and better solutions to avoid the problems we have seen. So maybe maybe a training program uh, supported by, by the county or by the state would be uh, a much benefit for, uh, for uh, the boards of all of these buildings. And the, the this, is not, this is not a problem that's limited to Florida, uh, even South Florida. It's, it's a problem on all coastal areas. Um, and so it seems to me it's a national problem that could be addressed by the Housing and Urban Development uh, Department or other, even uh, NOAA or whatever. There seems like there's a national solution that should play a role here as well in terms of education, not just a state or a county or a city solution. Yes, and, uh, and 
what I really believe is that it is not enough to just have the professionals educated and better informed. The, the, the solution in the end requires that the public itself, all of the public, needs to be better informed and educated on this. Realtors, because they get involved in the transaction that buy and sell properties. Uh, the, anybody sitting on the board, yes, because the heavy responsibility is such that the better informed and educated you are, the more protected you and those that live in that building will be. Well, I would have I would have liked to learn about this in high school, but back in high school when I went, you know, nobody knew what storm surge was, uh, very few. Nobody knew what climate change was. I would love to have had this education before I hit my current age, which I'm not going to disclose, but, you know, it's time for, I think, secondary education and, and higher education to incorporate some of this the science and some of these considerations into their curriculum because it's a practical matter people are going to deal with. And when you, when people leave coastal areas and go inland and resettle, it's going to impact everybody, whether they're in a coastal state or not. So these are, these are very important issues for education. And just one last comment along these lines, uh, part of the education can be by way of example. Uh, if, if you travel the coastline uh, of the Gulf Coast uh, from, from Naples to uh, Northport, for example, you will find a lot of damage and destruction, yes, but you will also find a large number of houses that were built to the latest building code that survived the impact the same impact that demolish a building or a house next door, they survive with minor damage. So if we emphasize what worked and we copy the good, uh, we could have an educational program based on, on those kinds of uh, empirical uh, examples. Well, I like that idea very much. Okay, well, uh, you know, so much to think about, so much to do, but we can't just think about it. We actually have to be proactive about all this. So thank you again for that, for that education. And there's a lot more to learn from you. So again, the, the book is very helpful. How do people reach you? Uh, the best way would be through my um, email, ricardoalfonso at mitigat. Can you spell out Mitigat for me? M as in Mexico, I, T as in Tom, I, G, A as in Apple, T as in Tom, Mitigat. Dot com. Dot com. Okay. Ricardo Alfonso, my first and middle name together. All right. Ricardo, thank you very much. Really thank appreciate you, it. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. You can read Ricardo Alvarez's book, Hurricane Mitigation for the Built Environment, by obtaining it from the CRC Press, which is part of the Taylor and Francis Group of Boca Raton, Florida. The website is www.crcpress.com. I'm Mitch Chester. 
Please join us again for another episode of Climate Monitor, where we explore the intersection of the climate crisis and opportunities to meet the challenges confronting us all. Please subscribe to the Climate Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit us at climatemonitor.net. Thank you.